this morning with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We are going to go over once again the text that we took up last week and explain it in a little more detail in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 to 16. That's right, Matthew 26, (laughs) verses 1 to 16. (laughs) No names, don't worry. (laughs) If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people." Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we learned last week, the Passion Week of our Lord Jesus Christ has begun. The week when Christ most clearly displays for us the love of God for his children in that while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. This Passion Week actually had commenced a few days earlier when Jesus entered Jerusalem back in Matthew chapter 21. There we read that he fulfilled the prophetic words of Zechariah. When we read in 21 verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So during this, the week of Christ's crucifixion, As we have been learning, he had poured himself into a few last-ditch efforts to bring the religious leaders in Israel to repentance. He did so by parables back in chapter 21 and 22, then by clear and insightful answers to their direct questions about taxes, the reality of the resurrection, and to which of the commandments in the Old Testament were the greatest. And then he directly declared himself to be the Son of God. He is the one that King David spoke to in the Psalms when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And after speaking all of these things, Matthew tells us in chapter 22, verse 46, that no one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And did the religious leaders in Israel... The religious leaders in Israel, they stopped asking him questions. But did they do so because they believed in what Jesus was saying? No. 
They stopped asking Jesus questions because he so soundly and repeatedly embarrassed them every single time they brought him a question. And because every single interaction that took place between Jesus and the religious leaders left the crowds in awe of Jesus and thinking less of these religious leaders. Impressed by Christ and not by the teachers of Israel. And so Jesus, knowing this, in Matthew chapter 23, launched into a series of withering condemnations and public renouncements of the scribes and the Pharisees. We know them as the seven woes of Matthew chapter 23. There we read Jesus telling them such things as this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and, in, and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. And again in 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which appear outwardly beautiful, but inside are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Clearer words had not been spoken to these men up to this point. But these religious leaders had hardened themselves against Jesus to the point of no return. They had simply refused to hear him, even though, as we learn in John 3, they knew that he was a prophet who had come from God to call them to repentance. And even so, even with this knowledge, they still hated him and sought to put him to death. And so, Christ's final word to the city of Jerusalem, to the leaders who oversaw and taught the city of Jerusalem, as he left the, before he left the city to spend time with his disciples, he lamented over the city. This city that throughout history had been given blessings unlike any other city. The enlightened city, the city that had indeed tasted the heavenly gift upon whom the protection of the Spirit of God rested, in whom the presence of God resided in the temple. Jerusalem, that taste, the city that tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come as it witnessed the miracles of Jesus in its midst. Jerusalem, the people described in Hebrews 6 when the writer penned these words, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You see, no people up to this point in history, again, had so tasted and seen that the Lord is good. No people had been so enlightened as these that were entrusted, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 2, with the oracles of God and given the law to guide them, who tasted the heavenly gift of the Lord's presence among them, who shared in the Holy Spirit as God resided in their midst, who tasted the goodness of of God who delivered them from bondage in Egypt and fed them with bread from heaven and drank, give them water from a rock during their sojourns in the wilderness. This is the God who cleared out the people of Canaan before the Israelites as he fulfilled his promises to bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. Jerusalem, the city that had tasted the powers of the age to come as Jesus himself in the flesh taught and worked powerful miracles among them. But even with all of this, they rejected, they rebelled, they fell away from the Lord who had saved them, who had brought them out of Egypt. These men's hearts were harder than even the most impenetrable and unyielding of stones. How could they be brought to repentance? And so as Jesus left the city to spend time with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he leaves the city with these parting words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. And then Jesus went up to the mountain and he spent time with his twelve explaining for them and to them and outlining for them the events that would lead up to the end of the age and describing for them his return, his future return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All of these events have taken place in the final week of Christ's earthly life. During this, the Passion Week, and now as we come to chapter 26, we are entering into the evening... And when Jesus will be betrayed, and the next day he will be crucified. And the rest of Matthew's gospel account will focus on the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. And so, just as, as we recap what we learned last week in chapter, verses 1 and 2, we see this. When Jesus finished all these sayings, the these sayings being everything he taught in chapters 24 and 25 about the end... He said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So you see, Christ had been preparing his disciples for this event, for these preordained proceedings. And so now he's letting them in on the timing of the event, which was less than two days from that moment. Jesus says, after two days, for us, we might say in less than two days, because by the Jewish accounting of a day, as long as there was a part of one day and a part of another, that comprised two days. Jesus will be put to death the very next day. Jesus knew the definite plan. He knew the decreed will of his Father in heaven, and he set his face to endure the cross He set himself to bear in himself the just, right, and holy penalty for the sins of all who believe in his name. And he did this in our place as our substitute. Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the same way that in the Old Testament, lambs were sacrificed and their death turned away from them the wrath of God, So Jesus is the one to whom the entire system pointed. Every sacrifice that an Israelite brought to the temple was a rehearsal for this, the main event. The great and the final sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that will, that did, that does effectively deal with and take away from those, the sin, takes the sin of those who repent and trust in him away. We also learn that while Jesus was saying these things to his disciples, there was at the very same time occurring another meeting, a clandestine cloak and dagger meeting between the chief priests and the elders of the people. In verses 3 and 4 we read, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Little did they know that what they intended for evil, what they meant for evil, the arrest and the murder of Jesus, God meant for good. It's an even greater fulfillment of the words that Joseph had spoken to his brothers after their betrayal. When he said to them in Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, the religious leaders here assumed that by seeing to the death of Jesus, they were simply going to put an end to any influence he might have, he might have had. But little, again, little did they know that their evil, that their willingly chosen actions, that in so doing, they would actually be fulfilling the good, the excellent, the wonderful plan of God to save a people for himself from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every language. And he would do this by the very death that these religious leaders were agitating for in the secrets, secret of night. 
And this ought to give us some degree of confidence, right? The knowledge that nothing can thwart or hinder or halt the will of God. That no one can stand in the way of God's decree advancing as he ordains it to advance. That no one can stand in the way of God's word accomplishing what he intends for it to accomplish. And for that reason, all of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning can stand firm in this unassailable truth. You and I who love the Lord Jesus ought to be the most confident, hopeful, and unshakably certain people on the planet because we know God is in control of everything. You can have religious leaders plotting the death of Jesus Christ himself and God up in heaven saying, I'm seeing to all of it, and you have no idea what's about to happen. And it's going to be good. Do not be anxious about anything. This is why Jesus could say that to us. Don't be anxious about anything, because God has got it all. Now, the Gospel of John informs us that this covert meeting of the religious leaders took place just after Jesus had brought Lazarus back from the dead. It was a stunning miracle that left so many in Israel believing in Jesus, the text tells us. And the religious leaders just could not stand for that. And so because of this, this meeting comes to pass. They gather together to double their efforts to destroy Jesus. Because a bunch of people are believing in him as a result of his bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And so they gathered and they plotted, and John eleven fifty seven 57 tells us, they sent orders out to the people that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that the religious leaders might go and arrest him. And as we learned last week, they had been committed to this course for a long time. Matthew noted it already back in chapter 12, verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. They'd been looking for this. They'd been plotting this for a while, and now their efforts are being amplified. They hoped to seize Jesus by cunning, hoping that if they could just get their hands on this man, perhaps they could lay enough charges at his feet, lay enough charges of blasphemy or something like that, that the crowds might look and be like, this isn't the guy that we want to follow. Let's eliminate him. But they were smart enough to realize that the timing had to be right. Verse 5, they said, not during the feast, meaning not during the feast of the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. But while they wanted to wait, because they didn't want to create any riots in Jerusalem during these days when the population of the city had swelled to its maximum, assistance would come to them from a rather unexpected source. One of Christ's very own disciples. And it's not some fringe disciple. It's not one of those who was standing around and saw Lazarus come out from the tomb and so at that moment decided to believe for a short time. No, the man who answered the call of the religious leaders, the man who knew where Jesus was, the man who would lead these men to capture Jesus, the man who betrayed Jesus into their hands was one of Christ's closest disciples. It was a man who had been with Jesus for three years, who had witnessed everything Jesus had done. He heard the gracious and awe-inspiring words that fell from the lips of Jesus. He ate meals with Jesus. He was on the boat with Jesus when Jesus calmed the sea. He saw Jesus walking on the water. He had been there for all of it, and yet on this night, it just wasn't enough for him. And so Judas Iscariot found the religious leaders and he joined in with their plot to arrest the Lord. And while we can't be certain what motivated Judas in his human spirit to betray Jesus, ultimately John's gospel explains the betrayal by saying this in John 13, 27. Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. Perhaps in his human mind, 
Judas thought that he could get himself a few coins to make up for the loss of profit that could have been made had they sold the expensive perfume that it was poured on Jesus that night, which we'll look at in a second. Maybe he thought to himself, Jesus has always managed to stay out of any real danger, putting the religious leaders in their place over and over again, so maybe I can get a few extra coins for the purse and let Jesus figure out how to get himself out of the mess I've created. If you look to Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4, you see that Judas was surprised by the fact that Christ was condemned in the end. It says, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and then he went and hanged himself. Perhaps Judas, like the rest of the disciples, wanted to push Jesus in the direction of becoming an earthly king of Israel the type of king, the type of messianic leader that they had been expecting, one who instead of being hated by the religious leaders would be loved by him. If only Jesus would take the reins and rule over the nation, then Judas and the rest of the twelve would ascend to the seats and the places of honor that they expected to have when they first signed up to follow Jesus. This has been the tactic and the strategy of Satan throughout the entire ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, to push Jesus away from the cross. Right from the beginning, you remember, Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, the first temptation was, turn these stones into bread. After Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, The text says, and he was hungry. Here comes Satan and says, turn these stones into bread. What is Satan trying to do there? Jesus, do you, what kind of father treats their son like this? What kind of father whose son is hungry in the wilderness isn't going to provide food for them? This will and plan that the father has for you, it's not as beneficial to you as you taking matters into your own hands and turning these stones into bread to take care of yourself. What father would leave his son like this to starve in the desert? Don't, why would you trust the will of one who would leave you here to suffer like this? Charge your own course. It's the same tactic he used in the garden. It's the same tactic he uses to great effect among humanity all over the world from that day to this one. Trust in yourself. And Jesus replied in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, no matter what happens to me, no matter how hungry I am, no matter where I find myself, I will continue to trust in and follow the will of my Father, even if that means I die a criminal's death on a Roman cross. Satan then says to Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because the Lord said he will will protect you and care for you. Throw yourself down from the heights and as you do, guess what? The skies are going to open. The angels will come to save you and then all of Israel will see and believe that you are indeed the Holy One of God and once they do, you don't have to deal with any future shame and humiliation and suffering. Again, to test in this way is to live contrary to the will of his Father. And so Jesus refuses once again and quotes Deuteronomy once again. Again, it is written, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And third, Satan brings Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. In other words, switch allegiances. Again, why walk the path of shame and suffering? Why head to the cross? Why not instead simply bow down to me and worship and leave behind the will of your heavenly father? I'll give you everything. It doesn't look like he's giving you everything. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Doesn't that sound better than dying some painful, horrible death? Do you really want to live your life as some homeless preacher in the backwoods of Israel, hated by those that you've come to help and hated by those you've come to save? 
And Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan! The words that every one of us ought to speak. And again, in Matthew 16, we see it more clearly when Jesus told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. Do you remember Peter's response? Peter came up beside Jesus, took him aside, and said this to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what was Christ's response to Peter in that moment? You remember it. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At every turn, Satan sought by numerous methods and strategies to keep Jesus from securing your salvation at the cross by becoming any other Messiah other than the one ordained for him to be by his Father in heaven. Because he knew, because Jesus repeatedly announced it, that should Christ follow through, that would mean his defeat and his demise. But amen and hallelujah. Our Lord Jesus Christ never veered from following the will of his Father in any way, any shape, or any form, even though everyone around him said dying a criminal's death on a cross and experiencing such shame and humiliation is not how the Jewish Messiah should live. This is not how things should go for him. But Jesus didn't see his crucifixion as some sort of shame and some sort of humiliation. Listen to how Jesus speaks about his impending crucifixion with it to his disciples in John 13, 31 as he's having dinner with them. Here's how he frames it. Immediately after Judas went out to betray him, we hear Jesus saying this, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Jesus understood that what he was about to do is a work of glory. It didn't matter what anyone around him said. Jesus remained uncompromisingly committed to obeying the will of his Father. But back to Judas. Why would Judas go out on this night and betray Jesus? It could also be that Judas despised the life that Jesus had called him to. This is a man revealed to us in the text as one who loves money, who used to help himself from the money bag. Here is a man who gave up everything to follow Jesus, and only after that learned that the Messiah is a man not, who's, who's not rich. He, Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. I have no place to call home. This is the man who sends his disciples to collect the tax money to pay from mouths of fish. Perhaps Judas was upset by that. Perhaps it's as simple as this. Judas was upset that his opinion was so soundly and quickly rebuked and dismissed at the dinner table that night. He wanted to be heard, but Jesus silenced him in order to praise Mary for her beautiful deed of worship. We can't know Judas' specific reasons, but we know Satan's are clear. Keep Jesus away from that cross. Perhaps once Jesus tastes what will happen, perhaps then, if he continues to follow this path set before him by the Father, then he'll change his mind. Perhaps when he sees a band of people coming to take him away, perhaps when he sees the mobs holding their sticks and their stones Perhaps when he understands that this is going to lead to flocking and mockery, he'll give it up. We realize, right, it is only because Christ's, Christ is perfectly meek that he fulfilled and continued to walk this path. If you knew that you had it at your disposal to make it all stop at any second, as people are ripping out your beard and spitting in your face and humiliating and speaking shameful words and you knew that you were their God. Only perfect 
meekness, only perfect power under control, a perfect love that sees exactly the, what, what he is there to accomplish could continue walking down that road. But how did all of this come about? Matthew in 26 verse 6 recounts an event, a dinner party. This dinner party is kind of a flashback to a previous event. This isn't something that took place on that night. This happened before Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's an earlier moment to help us gain some insight into Judas' decision to betray Christ into the hands of the Jewish authorities. And so Matthew begins as he envisions that dinner that happened just after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, it's kind of like the hearkening back to that time, in the house of Simon the leper. So again, the occasion, the timing of this dinner is according to the Apostle John in John 12, 1, six days before the Passover. So just prior to the triumphal entry. At this time, after Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, raising him from the dead, John 12, 2 tells us that the family gave Jesus a great dinner feast. And at this dinner were present Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon the leper, Jesus, and the 12 disciples. This is who is attending this dinner. And as Martha served the dinner, and Lazarus himself reclined at the table with Jesus, at some point during the festivities, verse 7 happened. A woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. John reveals the identity of this woman. He writes in his account these words, John 12, 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We've encountered these two sisters before, Mary and Martha. In way back in Luke chapter 10, we learn a little bit more about their particular dispositions. Martha as Luke records it, was a woman who oftentimes became distracted with much serving, Luke 10.40. Martha was focused on serving and noting all of the details that must be done to ensure a great dinner party. And she attended to them. But Martha also got upset at those around her when they didn't share her attention to detail and her commitment to serving. And so she got angry with her sister Mary, who instead of helping with all of the chores, chose to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching, Luke 10. So on that night, Martha went to complain to Jesus about Mary's lack of help. And she said to him in Luke 10, 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all along? Tell her then to help me. But as Luke continued, the Lord answered Martha, 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 you are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. In other words, Martha, sometimes you, like Mary, need to halt, to cease, to stop, to rest. Sometimes you need to sit and learn at Christ's feet. It's okay. Sometimes it's good to put that dish towel down so that you can hear and focus on and listen to my words. And now as we see this dinner in uh, Matthew 26, we see the same personality traits once again between Mary and Martha. In Matthew, John tells us that once again, here at this one, John 12, 2, Martha was serving. And as Martha served, 
Mary wasn't sitting at the feet of Jesus this time. This time Mary entered the room with an expensive bottle of ointment and she broke that bottle and she poured it all over Jesus so much that the oil ran from his head all the way down to his feet and she wiped those feet with her hair. The blessed feet that Mary had spent so much time seated at, listening to the words of Jesus, listening to him speak gracious, kind, compassionate, life-giving words of truth are the very feet upon which this expensive oil flowed. And she wiped it with her hair in gratitude, as if to say, it's from this place that I have heard and received and believed in the most greatest of blessings. It is from this place at your feet, O Lord, that my life has been changed forever. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of such a one who has brought to me the good news. And we learn that this ointment that she poured on Jesus, it wasn't cheap. Matthew in verse 7 describes it as an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And in John's account, one of the disciples values it at 300 denarii. In these days, one denarii is about one day's wages for an average worker. So the ointment then was pretty much worth a year's wages. What would that be in our own day? I don't know what the average is, 40,000. It's a pretty expensive pound of ointment there, to be sure. And who knows how long Mary had held on to this ointment. Had it been passed down to her from a loved one? Had she saved up for it for years She waited to buy such a luxury for herself. Perhaps it was an investment and she was waiting for the market price to rise so that she might help the financial situation of her house. Whatever the case may be, on this day, she went into her closet or she went to her shelf and she took this alabaster jar down, brought it into the dining room, broke it and opened and poured it out all over Jesus. This is Mary pouring out, as it were, all of her gratitude, all of her love, and all of her devotion to Christ. This is Mary displaying the depths of her affections for this man. In many ways, she's like the widow from Mark 12 who put her two small copper coins into the offering plate. While everyone around her was giving more money than her in quantity, her sacrifice was greater. And Jesus commended her for that. This is how much the widow loved and trusted in the Lord. She had two coins. She could have kept one and given one, and that would have been generous. But she gave both. She gave everything she had to live on because she loves and trusts the Lord that much. Same thing could go for Mary. She could have approached Jesus with some of the ointment at this dinner. She could have just gently popped open the top and let a little bit trickle on to Jesus' head. She could have, in her bedroom, measured out a little bit into a container and then poured that measured amount out on Jesus, and that would have been a great and generous gesture. But like the widow with the two copper coins who gave both coins, Mary poured the entire flask of expensive ointment on Jesus so that he was drenched with it. For Mary, no offering, no sacrifice, no cost was too great. Mark records it like this. She broke the flask, meaning it was broken beyond repair. And she poured it on his head. And as this fragrant oil ran all over Christ's body, so much oil that she could anoint his feet with it and the sweet fragrance of it filled the house. While Mary... In Mary's mind, no sacrifice was too great. We read in verse 8 that the disciples responded quite differently. Verse 8, we see this. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? See, the disciples were angered by what they just saw, by what they perceived to be a waste of resources. At least that's how it's presented during the dinner. And why were the disciples so indignant? Because one man murmured and complained and infected the other disciples with his complaint. Judas. 
John tells us that it was Judas who spoke these words and influenced the other disciples around him, and they all piled on to Mary. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to, this, given to the poor. Why this waste? Why this thoughtless, careless ruining of this ointment? Why wouldn't we be a little more practical here, fellas? This seems like such a reckless squandering of such valuable ointment to pour it all out and one person at one dinner, especially when it could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And again, John will tell us that while presenting himself in such generous colors, Judas didn't care for the poor. We read in John 12, 6, it says this, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, Judas here is trying to pass himself off as some sort of hero, a defender and a lover of the poor, but really he had no concern for the poor. He wanted the money put into the purse so that he could use that money for himself. Judas made a habit, Scripture tells us, of skimming from the money bag. And so when he, see, when he saw this, he wondered why we wouldn't have sold it so they could put that money in the purse. He wanted to accumulate the coins for himself. And a couple of things to note here. First, while everyone around the table considered Mary's act wasteful, even going so far as Mark tells us to scold her for her deed, Jesus made it abundantly clear that her seemingly wasteful and extravagant gesture was, in fact, an act of worship acceptable to him, praised by him. See, there are times when you might, for example, want to sacrifice greatly for Christ. And however that looks, I don't know. Perhaps some outrageous or seemingly immoderate or irresponsible financial sacrifice might be laid on your heart. Maybe at some point the Lord has pressed you to go out onto the mission field to some closed and dangerous and hostile country and by doing so you might put your very life at risk. Perhaps you might Spend hours in prayer as housework and all the different practical things around you rise up and pile up. And those around you will say to you, why this waste? Why put yourself at such risk? Or any other number of fault-finding practicalities that might be brought up to dissuade you from some lavish, sacrificial act of worship and love and devotion to Christ. It might very well be that what you want to do is received like Mary's act on this day. You're scolded and declared wasteful. But like Mary, don't let the scorn of those around you keep from, the performing, the, from you from performing superabundant, over-the-top deeds of devotion to Christ should you be called to do so. Sometimes the practical Martha is wrong and the impractical Mary is the one choosing the good portion. And second, notice how Judas frames his complaint. This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. He covered up his selfish motives under the guise of spiritual virtue when all along what he really wanted to do was steal the money. Believer, all of us must be careful about this ever-present temptation in our own souls to do exactly what Judas had done here to paint ourselves in the colors of virtue when our intentions are anything but virtuous. And this can be difficult, right? We live in the Facebook age where everyone is always only putting their best filtered foot forward. We don't see many flaws or we don't see immoral motivations and we don't want to be left in the lurch. We don't want to be the one who looks bad while everyone else looks great. And so we try to keep up. But listen, be real about motivations. If your motivations are inspired by the flesh, don't try polishing them up so that others might see you in a more positive light. No, you, Christian, forget about others, how others see you. Listen to Jesus. Identify the roots, the thoughts, the passion, the desires of your flesh. Take them captive, make war against them, and run to Christ in repentance. Don't be a phony. 
Don't be a fake. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a Judas. The world doesn't need more Judases. The world needs more committed, devoted, outlandish followers of Jesus Christ. But as, the, as these guys scolded Mary, Jesus speaks, and what does he say? He tells them of the propriety and the beauty of what Mary had just done. Look at verse 10. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, what Mary had done was quite impractical and under usual circumstances quite ostentatious. But here at the dinner, at this dinner, at this moment, Jesus approved, and not only that, he blessed her telling her that this deed that she had just done will be remembered through the ages. Her act of devotion will be memorialized for generations of believers who will come after her. Her costly act of worship will be held up as a model for future disciples. And here we are. Mary has proven to be this type of woman given to deeds that while others might deem them irresponsible, Jesus takes them, accepts them as deeds of love. And so Jesus answers their claim or their, this, their statement about this could be sold and given to the poor. Verse 11, he said, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The idea here being that as followers of Jesus Christ, the opportunity for you and I to care for the needs, to minister to the needs of the poor, it will always be here for us to take part in. There will never be any shortage of poor in our midst in need of help and assistance. It will always be something that you can put your hand to at any day, at any point of your life. There will always be poor. It will always be the case that anyone who follows Christ can express their obedience to Him in caring for the poor among our brothers. However, for Mary... To perform such a magnanimous and beautiful act of worship to Christ at this unique time in history, during the incarnation, during the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, it was rapidly coming to a close. Because Jesus is about to go to the cross and ascend to heaven and to the right hand of God the Father soon after his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus told them, you can go do good for the poor whenever you wish. That option will be open to you and available for you from this day to the last day. But don't complain about this beautiful deed. Don't begrudge or scold Mary for this act of worship because the time and opportunity for her to display such costly love to me while I'm on earth is quickly coming to a close. And what's more, Jesus continued in, chapter, in verse 12 to 13, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This word here in the Greek, the word for pouring, is a different word than that which is used in verse 7. Here the word means a profuse, lavish throwing of ointment all over the body. He says, she has done this to prepare me for burial. Now we can't be sure whether Mary did this by accident because she simply wanted to show her love for Jesus, or on purpose to anoint him for burial. But as I pulled, pushed my chair back and I pondered and thought about it, I couldn't help but think, this is Mary. This is the woman who loved to sit at Christ's feet and to learn. She loved hearing him teach. And as we know through the gospel, Jesus has not been secretive about his impending death. And as she listened, perhaps she thought to herself, how many more opportunities will I have to display my love for Jesus before the death that he's repeatedly foretold? Let me prepare him. Let me anoint him for this time today. I like to think she knew exactly what she was doing. She understood the weight of the moment and therefore is a contrast to the disciples who are still bickering about the cost of perfume around that table. So she reveals her great faith in him. 
And so as a result, the story of this woman, while the great works of kings and influential men throughout history have faded into antiquity and into obscurity, this story is recorded in Scripture and taught to the entire world thousands of years later. The story of this woman, thankful to her Lord Jesus Christ. The story of this woman and her love and costly worship, which is then contrasted with Judas, who is seated at the same table, who went that night to betray Jesus. Contrast the great love and devotion of Mary to the duplicitous betrayal by Judas. As Judas, angered by the loss he felt, incurred by the waste of the ointment, went out apparently to see what he could make up by delivering Jesus. We'll end there. The Lord is good. An impractical Mary is a wonderful example to all of us. We can kind of get caught up sometimes in worshiping the Lord according to the practicalities of the world that we live in. But when you read the scriptures, you realize oftentimes that serving Jesus in some senses, doesn't make sense to the world. It's impractical. It's impractical to be honest. It's impractical not to lie. It's impractical to be a person who claims everything on your taxes. It's impractical. You know, those, all those things are impractical. And you will hear it. I remember one time buying a car. I paid 5000 for the car and going to the Service Ontario and the woman showing me the blue book value of the car, which was like 2000 and she said to me, uh, how much did you pay for it again? And I said, 5000 Okay, so you pay your taxes for 5000 That's impractical. I could have used that money, just like you could. Serving Jesus can be impractical. But oftentimes, impractical obedience is better than practical disobedience every time. Father, we praise you. You are great, you are glorious, and you are wonderful. I thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you for the example of this woman who pours out her extravagant love to you and is a model for all of us, men, women, and children, about such costly love. I thank you that you have placed her story in your word, that we might learn from it. And I pray that each and every one of us wouldn't be comfortable with a logical head knowledge in our life for, of service to you, but that our love and our service and our devotion and our affection would be lavish and costly, over-the-top, abundant, and that that love that we reveal to you in this world would just not make sense to the world we live in. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand at all times that you're worth it. We ask you for all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.